This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Normally, as you know, I start each episode with a single quote, and from that we begin an examination of the speaker or the writer, and we pull that quote apart and look for meaning and lessons that we can take away from the episode. Well, today is going to be a little bit different. Uh, this, this episode actually started the same, research-wise, as other episodes. But I quickly learned that this particular subject, this particular letter from this particular person would not be done justice simply from a single quote. So I decided instead to pull many quality quotes from this particular letter, and we're going to take a look at all of them, in fact. We'll spend a little less time on each one than we normally would, but I think we'll get a better view of both the speaker and the content by looking at more than just a single quote. I think a single quote just doesn't simply just does not do this letter justice. As I said, we'll look at multiple quotes from the same person. In this case, as you know, it's Martin Luther King Jr., and the letter specifically, is a letter that he penned while sitting in the Birmingham City Jail back in 1963. We'll look at all of those, we'll examine a little bit of that, and there's many, many lessons to be taken from this. As I mentioned, the year is 1963. The city is Birmingham, Alabama. And at that time, this was one of the most segregated and racist cities in America, with a very large black population At the time, it was approximately 40% black and 60% white. Now, of course, those numbers aren't 100% accurate because obviously there are not just black and white people in there, in the the city of Birmingham at the time, but more or less a 60-40 split white to black. And that was a large proportion of black residents and yet still a minority. And Martin Luther King Jr., the leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, along with the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, began a deliberate campaign in April of nonviolent protest to undermine and resist the segregationist and racist policies of the city and also the state of Alabama. And about a week into the protest on April 10th, 1963, these protests, by the way, included marches, boycotts, sit-ins, etc., a circuit court judge by the name of W.A. Jenkins Jr., gave a broad-reaching and all-encompassing ruling that prohibited, quote, every imaginable form of demonstrations. Now, if, like me, when you hear that, your First Amendment alarm bells start going off, you're right for doing so. We'll come back to that later. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr., as a leader of a protest and resistance movement would do, ignored that judge's ruling, and again, we'll talk about that more later as well, but two days later, King and others were arrested and incarcerated in the Birmingham City Jail for what would turn into an eight-day stay, and it cost about $160,000 in bail money that had to be scraped together to get him released. And during his time in jail, King had a newspaper that someone smuggled into him with a cooperative statement by numerous Alabama clergymen bemoaning and, and taking issue with the events quote, directed and led in part by outsiders, which of course is an allusion 
to Martin Luther King Jr. himself. And the letter was published in the newspaper the very same day that King was arrested, April 12, 1963. And King, upon seeing this letter, which called for local black and anti-segregationist leaders to conduct negotiations and court filings to protect their rights, began to pen a response. And as the story goes, he began to pen his response in the margins of the very paper that he had read this article in. And eventually little scraps of paper here and there. And finally, he was able to get an actual pad of paper and, and write this letter itself. Now, of course, you can go online and find the transcript of this letter, and I encourage you to do so because there's so much good content in it and because it is one of the hallmark pieces of writing from the 20th century, arguably of, of all of American history, because of how compelling and well-written it was. And in the minds of these local clergymen, there were both, um, there were both Christian and Jewish leaders that had cooperated to write this. I believe there were eight total. And in their mind, protests such as King's were unnecessarily inflammatory and even arguably counterproductive to the cause of desegregation and equal rights. And of course, in King's mind, nothing could be further from the truth. We know, of course, that King was an excellent, emotional, and compelling speaker. You have doubtlessly heard his I Have a Dream speech, or at least portions of it. This incident in Birmingham, Alabama, predates that speech, which was given in August of 1863. But just as his speech in Washington, D.C. echoes to today as one of the greatest and most important speeches in American history, so too does this letter from the Birmingham City Jail. And it's only about five pages long. It's a very, it's a very easy read, but contained inside of it, you can, you can feel the same emotion, the same passion, the same caring and kindness that you hear in his I Have a Dream speech. And so this is an interesting, Martin Luther King Jr. is an interesting individual and a perfect one for a show like this because he so perfectly encapsulates both not both a, a good writer and a good speaker, arguably a great writer and a great speaker. And he put those same speechwriting talents to good use in this letter. And I encourage you to read it all because, again, you can feel that passion and that, that conviction just from the contents of the letter, even contextless. You can imagine, imagine a, a black man in Birmingham, Alabama, stuck in jail for unlawful reasons, just milling about and, and, and mulling over the, the topic and hearing his people that are supposed to be on his side, people that are anti-segregationists and anti-racism and that want to see equal rights being chastised by the very same people who are supposed to be on his side. And he actually addresses that in the letter. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But imagine a pen and the margins of a newspaper and Martin Luther King Jr. sits down to write this letter. And, and you can feel the effort that the Reverend put into remaining kind, but also firm, direct, but caring with those with whom he clearly strongly disagreed. I mean, you can imagine, imagine the frustration where you think that someone is on your side and it turns out that they are, they're not, they're not, maybe they're on your side in the global, in the large picture, but in the micro, they disagree with your means and methods. Imagine what that must feel like to somebody who already feels like the deck is very stacked against him in the cause. Imagine what it must be like to sit down with a pen and paper and try to respond to that and not to do so in anger and frustration, but to do so in a way that not just counters 
the arguments against you, but invites them to see things your way and, and, and goes a step beyond that even and compels them to see things your way. That is what Martin Luther King Jr. does with this letter. And it is truly a masterclass in how quality writing can evoke emotion and action and then persist well beyond the pages on which it is written. That's what's most impressive about this letter. And the letter, in summary, counters the assertion that, first, that he is an outsider. He speaks of the interrelatedness of communities and states, tying all of those oppressed, regardless of where they live, together as one oppressed people. And here's where our first quote comes in. He says, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So right out of the gate, this is very early on in the letter, Martin Luther King says, you have called me an outsider. You, fellow clergymen, Christian and Jewish leaders, have called me an outsider, alluded to my cause as outsiders running amok in your city. You have a better system. You claim that I am doing harm to the cause instead of good, that here in Birmingham, we do it this way. Here in Alabama, we do it this way. You, remember, King is from Atlanta, Georgia. You from Atlanta, Georgia, don't understand what it's like here in Alabama. We do things differently. Your cause is not our cause. Your methods are not our methods. And this beautiful line, in three sentences, King unites the otherwise disparate efforts at desegregation and anti-racism into a unified network of mutually supporting and interested parties. Right? He says, no, that's not true. What happens in Atlanta and happens in Birmingham are the same. Because an injustice in Birmingham is an injustice in Atlanta. And an injustice in Atlanta is an injustice in Birmingham. Because if it's okay where you are, that's telling somebody else that it's okay where I am. And vice versa. His garment of destiny, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful turn of phrase right there. I mean, it sounds like something, and, and to, to make not to make a jest of it, but it sounds like something like the next Harry Potter novel will be Harry Potter and the Garment of Destiny, right? That's what it sounds like. But really, if you, if you think about what he's implying there is that garments are, garments are clothes, right? They're worn by all, and they're woven strand by strand. I mean, it's, it's a perfect metaphor for what he's trying to get at here, is that we are all united in this. The Garment of equal rights, the garment of civil liberties, the garment of equal access to education and justice is a garment worn by all of us, regardless of where we live. And we are making that garment. We are sewing together the tapestry that makes this garment that we all wear. I mean, it's just, it's, it's beautiful. And I love that line. And he he later goes on, so now that he's tried to unite the cause and say that we're all pulling in the same direction, we should all be pulling in the same direction. Injustice for you is injustice for me, directly or indirectly. He later argues that direct action, as he calls it, meaning protests and sit-ins and marches and boycotts, we're not talking about violence. These are all non-violent direct actions. He says an another great quote. He says, quote, seeks to create a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. So again here, don't, don't read too far into the word crisis. It's not a crisis in terms of 
the destruction of things. It's not a crisis in terms of people suffering, right? He's talking about a crisis, meaning that an, an upsetting of the apple cart, something that is that forces the issue, something that we we know that when crises are upon us, we tend to laser focus on correcting them. That is what he is trying to do through this direct action, right? He's talking about protests and sit-ins, marches and boycotts, and those are the tools by which he forces those who otherwise don't want to talk about the issue, don't have to talk about the issue, to have to talk about the issue. And again, King is saying that negotiation has a place because that was one of the biggest criticisms from the letter from the clergyman in the Birmingham area was, why, why direct action? Why must you march? Why must you conduct sit-ins? Why can't you just talk? Why can't you get around a table and negotiate? And if negotiations don't go well, use the courts. And King is saying that, indeed, brothers, negotiation has a place. He's not, again, there's, there's subtlety here. He's not overtly disagreeing with the writers of the letter that are critical to him. But he's saying that nonviolent direct action can force corrupt and disinterested systems and leaders to have to acknowledge and address the issue. He follows on to that saying that his goal is to, quote, help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. So let's let's pick that apart a little bit here. So we have a causal chain now, right? King is laying out his case to his fellow clergymen. He's not saying, we just disagree, you just need to see it my way. He's laying out how he got there, right? He's saying that prejudice is indeed present. I think all parties would agree on that, right? Whether they were from Alabama or Georgia, it did not matter. And that that needed to change, right? And this is where the point of departure happens. The Alabama clergyman argued that negotiation in the courts are the tools. King argued that negotiation has not worked, right? The system has failed due to corruption, indifference, majority rule, etc. And that nonviolent direct action, therefore, forces the issue, which, therefore, can then return to negotiations and begin them anew, and hopefully a resolution can be found. Right? And you could see how this would happen. Imagine imagine Birmingham, Alabama. Imagine the black leaders in the area sitting down with the local government and saying, these are the injustices that we see. We would like to discuss how we can change these things. And these conversations had happened. These conversations were happening. In fact, there was a new administration coming into governance at the time. And there was hopes that negotiations would work with them. And what King is saying is that Okay, yes, they'll sit around the table with you and they'll promise things, but then they won't follow through, right? Then you'll still have unjust police. You'll still have racist judges and officials adjudicating this system that you were told was fair, but it is not fair, right? This agreement has broken because of corrupt and unjust officials. Therefore, the only way to return to the negotiating table and correct the issue is to conduct nonviolent direct action. And I think that's a fascinating perspective for him to have because he creates a very compelling case that there is injustice. That injustice needs to change. We attempted to talk about it. Those talks broke down. Those promises were not fulfilled. Those contractual gentlemen's agreements or legal agreements are not being met. And therefore, the only way that we bring these, we force this issue upon people who don't want to address it and don't want to change it, the only way we can do that is 
by putting them into a crisis, by creating a crisis within the system. Again, not a crisis of suffering, but a crisis of inaction where it is untenable to ignore this problem further. That's what King is trying to accomplish here. And as you can tell, this is a very important and interesting topic to me. I mean, the, the writing of King here is, a again, a masterclass in how to compel those who disagree with you to not only see it your way, but then agree with you and take action. And such is the tone of this letter, and I, I think while I wasn't planning to do this as a two-part episode, I think I will, as, again, there's just so much great content here, and we've only gotten through a portion of it, and I want to keep this episode at a reasonable length for you. So I think we need a second installment. I think truly to do it justice, that's that's what we need. And so I guess as we close today, now that you know that this will be the topic of the next episode, that this letter from a Birmingham jail written by Martin Luther King Jr. in the spring of 1963, I encourage you to go to the website, www.quotationspod.com, and find the letter there and read through it, maybe annotate it, highlight and next week, we'll look at the remainder of the letter for its additional value. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at QuotationsPod or join the conversation on Facebook at QuotationsPod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.